as we continue in going through 1 Thessalonians, give attention to the reading of God's Word. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. They do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Let's pray. Father, As we gather here this day, I pray that you would open our ears to your word and that you would allow us to hear and know what you would say to us this day. You use fallible men such as myself to work out your intended plan, to deliver your word to your people. And so we all pray this day that you would use me in this way. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we work through 1 Thessalonians, you get a little bit of it every other month. And so to recap on where we're at now, this is the third one in 1 Thessalonians. So you remember Paul, Silas, and Timothy had made their way over into Macedonia. Paul and Silas originally left from Jerusalem and picked up Timothy along the way and eventually made it to Philippi 
where they suffered persecution. They moved on from there after they had to flee and made it to Thessalonica. After spending about three to four weeks in Thessalonica, they too had to flee there and went to Berea. Paul then leaves and flees to Athens while Silas and Timothy remain there in Berea. Eventually, Paul summons Silas and Timothy down to Athens. And from that point is where we see Timothy being sent back to Thessalonica. And it's referenced here in the text. Paul then moves on and heads to Corinth, where he writes this letter shortly after Timothy returns uh, with both uh, himself and Silas. So this letter, likely written from Corinth, is a, a great letter of rejoicing and thanksgiving as we celebrate this time of thanksgiving, knowing that the people had persevered and had endured so far. So it's a direct response from the news that just came back from Timothy. As a reminder, it's written by all three of these missionaries. This is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. As a review, the first uh, message on this one, we, we talked through chapter 1, where we give, they were giving thanks, knowing that the gospel was working there. It was effective. Then they start to address the various topics that they need to address, most of them revolving around thanksgiving, but giving them encouragement at the same time. So we saw how God had given them and us, men, uh, to help shepherd us and care for us so that we can walk worthy of God. Here, much of it is dealt with the persecution that they were going through and that they were well aware of. And in future topics, we'll be discussing the various uh, issues in Christian love as well as more on Christ's return that they were all expecting. And so we pick up here in the middle of a section break. You notice we didn't start at the beginning of the chapter. We picked up not even the middle of a, uh, the beginning of a section, but right in the middle. But it comes with the same characteristic that you'll see that these missionaries uh, describe, and you'll see those section breaks delineated by, for you, brethren. So look for those. And they make a comparison showing that the Thessalonians are going through the same persecution that they had already experienced in Judea this persecution from their own countrymen. This wasn't persecution from the outside. This is the persecution from the people that they knew and were close to. They get great hope knowing that ultimately uh, God will take care of things uh, and that the, in the end, the wrath of God will be poured out on those doing the persecuting. But they still had to endure it nonetheless. So these churches in Judea, uh, where were they? This was going to be the region on the other side of the Mediterranean, bordering the eastern wall of the Mediterranean there, focusing primarily on Jerusalem. As you can see with the text, how it annotates that this is the location of where Christ was persecuted. This is the place where the prophets were killed. But it included many of the churches in the region, for that persecution spread quickly out from Jerusalem into that region. The people there in Judea persecuted Paul and Silas. That's where they came from. Timothy didn't likely experience that persecution at that time, so this was coming from Paul and Silas who were from the region. And Paul was even part of the problem before his conversion. He was one of the persecutors. So here we have these missionaries. They're very well acquainted with the concerns going on in Judea, and they're seeing it again wherever they go. They're now in modern-day Greece ministering to these people, seeing the exact same thing they saw there. So this wasn't just something that the Jews were doing. This is something that is because of the gospel going forth. And so from the text in chapter 2, 16, you see that 
the example that they give of persecution in this case was a prohibiting of the preaching of the word. But that wasn't the only type of persecution. They were very well aware of the various other types of persecution, such as the physical persecution, anything from the stoning of Stephen to the various beatings of Paul that will eventually come about. There was economic persecution. They had just experienced that as they left Thessalonica. Jason was having to be thrown into prison and has to post bond to get out. So for their faith, they're seeing a variety of things even they had seen unto death with the Lord Jesus Christ down in Judea. So they were expecting this. It wasn't a surprise. It happened in Judea. It happened in Philippi. It happened here in Thessalonica. And so if they were expecting it, what is this, this suffering and this persecution? And so I would venture to say for all of the adults out here, you're probably well aware of the Christian doctrine of, of suffering and persecution. I don't think there's a one of you out here that will go, I don't think that we're going to have any suffering and any persecution. So, so this explanation of the theology of, of suffering and persecution is going to be more for the younger folks who may not know this. We're not a health and wellness prosperity gospel church where we're preaching that life's going to go well for all of you. So for the children, if you haven't experienced yet, it's not going to always go well. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be turmoil. There are things that are not going to go well for you. Bad things will happen. And it's more than just what you read about with being thrown to the lions or being stoned. As you grow up, you can find that you may lose a job because of your faith. You may be laughed at. You may just be looked down upon considered part of a, a different crowd, a lesser crowd in their eyes. You could be ignored. But realize you can take comfort and hope in knowing that Christ has gone through all of that. Because Christ not only suffered a physical persecution, he has suffered the entire wrath of God for our sins, for all of those grievances. We realize the comfort that we have is that when we go through that suffering, we go through it with a purpose. Our suffering isn't accidental. This isn't something outside of God's control. That's why we meditate upon this this morning, that all things do work together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. So to help the children understand this, suffering for doing bad is not really suffering for persecution. So I had a, a time when I was younger, and it was my dad's birthday that morning, Going down into the, the kitchen from my room early in the morning before my parents awoke, I found the chocolate cake. It was all prepared from the night before. No one would notice the little bit of icing off the back, or that little bit off the back of there. And my brother joined me in this, and by the end of the morning, there was no icing left on the cake. <laughs> when we got in trouble, that was not persecution. That was disobedience. And we were punished for that. So don't get the idea that when bad things happen for disobedience, that that's not the persecution we're talking about here. The persecution we're talking about here is when you stand up and you say what's right, and someone says, you can't have any chocolate cake for that. Recant what you say, or I'm not going to give you any chocolate cake. So 
those who will eventually do that persecuting, that, that telling you what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right and punishing you for doing the right thing, ultimately they will receive their due reward. And it says here in the text that the persecution that they'll receive from the Lord is currently delayed in order to, quote, fill up the measure of their sins. Now that concept here, that filling up the measure of their sins, that's not a new thing for the missionaries here. That's something they've seen throughout Scripture. In Genesis 15, 16, it says the, the punishment was delayed against the Amorites. It says, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We see it in Daniel. Daniel 8, around verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. So God has been very patient throughout history to delay the punishment that people, these persecutors, so often deserve. But he does it all in the right time for his good purposes. Now, specifically, the persecution on the persecutors that Paul mentions here, he puts it in the past tense. It says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So he says the wrath has already come upon them. But the wrath really hadn't been fully poured out yet. So what's he, what's he doing with this? And the, the very end there, to the uttermost, the underlying Greek for that is the telos. We've talked about that before. That's the basic Greek word where we get telescope. So when we see a telescope, it's taking something that we see from afar off and bringing it near. And so Paul had the same concept where he knew the wrath that was to come. He knew what the end was, but he was so confident in everything that God said would come to pass that he can speak about it here in the past tense. God said it would happen. It will happen. So it happened, is what he says. But in reality, in all likelihood, Paul's expecting this to come here in the near future. He doesn't know the day or the hour that this particular wrath was going to come upon them. But he had in mind the general concept that God would punish them and expected it to even be inside of that generation. Now, before we look at some of that, realize in Thessalonians, this can be a very confusing concept. There are two terms that get used here. And if you read them right back to back, you can get very confused very quickly. The first is the coming of the Lord, and the other is the day of the Lord. Now, we'll, we'll go through this more in subsequent sermons, but the coming of the Lord concept here is the underlying Greek, and that's the perusia. That's going to be the coming of the Lord at the end. That is when the dead will rise, and all. that's the end of time. But this day of the Lord that we also see in Thessalonians, this is the coming judgment that they expected in their lifetime. Two different events here. So here in 2.16, in chapter 2, this is going to be a reference to that second one, the day of the Lord, something that's a, more of an immediate coming judgment. And this coincides with other passages throughout the New Testament. For example, John in Revelation 1.1, he introduces the book as revealing the things that must shortly take place. John likewise in 21.22 shows that Jesus, while speaking to Peter, tells him that John would remain until Jesus came back. 
It says there, Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter also acknowledges that the time that he was writing was going to be the last times. In 1 Peter 1, verse 20, he says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And he also states in, later in the, the same book, in 1 Peter 4, 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So amongst the apostles, there was this concept of there was coming judgment. They didn't know when that was going to be, that specific judgment, but they knew God had promised to ultimately do this. And so here we see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy encouraged the saints in Thessalonica by reminding them that the Lord's got this. Vengeance is the Lord's. Don't worry. They then express their desire to return in order to see the Thessalonians face-to-face. But it says here that Satan hindered them. Satan is the ultimate one behind this persecution. There in verse 18. In probably most of your translations, this will be uh, translated as hindered us. Uh, The NIV and the New Revised Standard actually translated as blocked our way. I think both of these are good translations of it. The, The underlying term, it's really a military term. It's used in a scenario such as tearing up a road as an enemy army is approaching, and how can we hinder them? How can we block their way from getting to us? There was a time when Mercy and I lived in South Korea, and at the time we had to travel far and wide to find a a good local body to worship with. And so for a time, we actually worshiped in the demilitarized zone, which is right on the border of South Korea and North Korea. To get there, we lived south of Seoul, the capital. We would have to travel to Seoul, around Seoul, and then north of Seoul, Uh, to get to that particular location. Now realize, Seoul in South Korea is in a a uniquely bad scenario where it's within shelling distance of North Korea. Should war break out, those those shells from the mortars can actually land in Seoul where basically one-third to one-half the population lives. And so as we would drive there and back, we would notice these things that were quite odd. And some of the things we noticed were these bridges that were they were just strangely placed. We found out later that what they were is the, the bridges actually had charges set in them so that if North Korea were to invade, they could blow the bridges, and the bridges would fall down on the road and thus delay and hinder the North Korean army from advancing south onto Seoul. You likewise would have tanks stationed not in normal spots, but they were hidden in the hills facing north ready for an advancing North Korean army moving south. Well, this is that concept of of, of they were doing their best to hinder uh, that advancement of the North Koreans coming down. You know, likewise, in a military scenario where you're trying to defeat the enemy, if you have a bunch of planes on the ground, one way you can defeat that enemy is to go bomb or blow up every single plane. And so if a military base has 100 planes, you have to strike 100 different times. Well, one other tactic could be, why don't we just blow up the runway and drop a few bombs on the runway and crater the runway? This, too, would hinder the advance of the airplanes as they were trying to take off. So why do I mention this? Other than neat military stories, understanding the enemy's tactics is key for us. 
we have to know what he's trying to do. He's trying to hinder Paul, Silas, and Timothy from doing the ministry that, he, that God had ordained them to do. So when we see these tactics, we have to know how to respond. The tactic here was Satan wanted to inhibit, prohibit the face-to-face meeting of these missionaries back with the people they were called to minister to. He was cratering the runway for Paul, for Silas, and for Timothy. So what do we need to do? When, when that happens, even now, for that spiritual warfare is still present, when those runways are cratered for the, the ministry that God has given you to do, what do you do? Well, first off, you think military-minded. We're still at war with this. The, the spiritual warfare did not end in 30 A.D. or 70 A.D. It is still going on. So what did they do? We can learn from them. Well, you see, they couldn't all go, so what did they do? They sent Timothy instead. They could do that. They had a workaround. But they also focused on making sure they understood what were their primary weapons in this. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. With spiritual warfare such as this, there are spiritual weapons that were given. John Bunyan does a great job in the Pilgrim's Progress of, as he's in the palace, beautiful, he gets a tour of the place. And in this tour, there's an armory. And so we see Bunyan's expression from Ephesians of what are these tools that we have? What are the weapons that we go to war with? The next day, they took him into the armory where they showed him all kinds of equipment that the Lord had provided for pilgrims. Sword, shield, helmet, breastplate, all prayer, and shoes that would never wear out. So you see, he lifts that straight from Ephesians, but he puts it in a way that we understand that these are real weapons when we go to war, that we use them. And specifically, one of the ones that I always love, and I I love the way Bunyan keeps the words together, all prayer. It's like its own little package. It it wasn't necessarily designed to be that way, but it's it's become its own noun to Bunyan, the, the all prayer weapon. So we use all prayer when we go out to war. And this is exactly what they were using here. The, it's the, the, in chapter 3, 11 through 13, he concludes chapter 3 with the weapon of all prayer. He brings these things before God, knowing that ultimately God is the one who is going to fight this fight and to win this battle. And so as we see our weapons and the weapons that we have available to us, we have to train with them. Now I get to throw out a Caleb story on this one. So there's this time that we, in the fire department, we have to be well-trained so that we can use our equipment, whether it's good times or bad times, hard times or easy times. So picture 10, 15 firefighters crawling around on the back floor of the barn here, all with blindfolds on and their gear, in the dark with uh, evil mastermind instructors kicking and moving things around. And, And our mission was to be able to find our air tanks swap our air tanks, uh, and and get another one on, all while we can't see in the dark with people messing with us. Uh, It puts a challenge to you. So think through that, and can you do the same thing when the going gets tough with your all-prayer weapon? When, When the things do get tough, are you used to, in the little things, praying, looking to God, and understanding what that weapon is? Likewise, and this is the one we often forget, when things are going good, when things are going well, when things are, we're settled on the lees and we're beginning to get complacent, do we turn to God with our all-prayer weapon and use it and to pray to God that we would not get complacent in this battle? 
Well, here we see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they ultimately had their own preferred method of fighting back. They used something, and I'm not picking on Android users here, but they used FaceTime. So that was their preferred ministry tactic, to go out and be with people face-to-face. They used the writing as a second best. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they wanted to be with the Thessalonians. But when that ultimately couldn't work, they, they did the second best. They sent just Timothy, and here even Timothy couldn't go back to deliver this message. They sent a letter. And this was a common, common tactic. And this is one of the things we need to learn. Paul used it in Romans 111. It says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. John says it in 3 John 1, verse 13. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. This face to face interaction was important, it was effective, it was what God had designed for us. Even with Jesus in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. This is what we long for with Jesus Christ. We want to see him face to face. That ministry that he will have with us even there is even more glorious than what we have now. Here in the passage that we have before us, you'll see many of those phrases. We see that he's addressing of being taken away. He longs to see your face, to come to you, to see us, to see you, to see your face, and direct our way to you. This was very important to him. He wanted to get there and to implement that tactic. So what do we take away from this? We need to have that same desire. It was what the apostles used. It's effective. It's because God designed it for us. So we need to have that culture of working with one another and ministering with one another primarily in a face-to-face type of environment. I don't want to diss all the technologies that are out there, but should our ministry primarily be via Facebook, Instagram, even mass writing blogs, etc.? I'd argue no. They have their uses and their useful tools, but they shouldn't be our primary method. We should long to see one another face-to-face. So as we develop those friendships, as we develop those relationships, what's the telos? What's the end goal of that? Is it going to be to receive from someone, or is it going to be to give and to impart to someone? Now, Stephen Covey, in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, introduces the concept of the circle of influence and a circle of concern. For those that haven't seen that, here in pertaining to relationships, Everyone that you deal with in life will fall under that circle of concern. It could be the, the grocery clerk uh, to your pastor. But the circle of influence is really that smaller subset. It's the circle inside that circle. This is the one that you're going to be effective with. You're going to have relationships with. People will listen to you, and you, you may minister to them. So how does that apply to what the Thessalonians hear are hearing from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Realize that you are in this body because God has called you here and has given you a spiritual gift to use for the edification of this body. It says in 1 Peter 4, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold graces of God. 
Everyone has a different gift. What is your gift that God has given you? Everyone from the oldest among us to the youngest. I can tell you, you know, right now that if any of you are sad and not wanting to talk, my daughter Rachel has a gift. She will sit with you at a lunch table and she will talk to you. And you can remain introverted and if you're sad, if you're an extrovert and just don't want to talk, she will talk to you for an hour or two. And she will cheer you up. So that is her gift. Even a little one. She just turned five. She can do that. Everyone here has that. Not necessarily that particular gift. Look for the gift that God has given you and find the way that you can use it to impart blessings to the body. Make sure you're minimizing those areas where you're not ministering. So God placed Paul, Silas, and Timothy where he placed them, not so that they could write mass letters to the Romans or to the Greek world in general. He placed them there to minister in person, and in this case in writing, to very particular congregations. So as we go out and we battle Satan, and we battle the evil one in, in all that he's doing to fight against us, we have to remember how do we be effective in this warfare. To do that, we need to enlarge that circle of influence. So what do I mean by this? Well, you're, everyone's going to be given a different circle of influence, that, that group of relationships that you have that you can be effective in. My daughter Rachel's circle of influence is much smaller than Pastor Lovett's. She has, though, people that she is around and she can influence and she can relate with and minister to. So whatever the circle size for you is, the, the key in it is be very careful about spending and wasting time while we're in battle with relationships where you're not able to minister. Look for those ways where you are and grow that circle of influence. And you don't have to worry as you go through this that if, man, if I just spend all this time ministering to other people, I'm going to get burned out. You know, God will refresh you. God gives you this ministry so that you can go about his purposes. And he takes care of the strengthening you when you didn't even know it. That's why Paul and Silas and Timothy focus so much on this particular congregation. God had allowed and even directed that the Thessalonians were to be part of their circle of influence. And so they had a passion and a desire to really see that flourish. We see then that when the coast was clear and that Satan didn't block this avenue of attack, that they were able to send Timothy back to minister to them, knowing that they parted in time of great affliction and persecution. You see that in the beginning of chapter 3 there. And this is something that they were appointed by God to do, as it says in verse 3. So in addition to this being a a FaceTime ministry, this is also a follow-up ministry. So the two aspects of there, yes, he wants it to be personal and in, in person, but also they had the ministry of follow-up. And this is something that we often find lacking in our modern-day evangelism, in our modern-day discipleship. We, we find it, it's okay, let's just go out and share the gospel, and then we're done. We move on to the next person, we move on to the next place, our short-term missions, they, they don't go back. That's not the, the passion and the desire that we see from these missionaries. It's going to, effective ministry requires that you go back over and over. You may be blocked for a time. Understandable. 
but what should our passions be? What should our heart be with this? You'll find it naturally already occurs in your household. Uh, For most households in, in Christian homes, you will find that you have this repeated opportunity to follow up. And it's very effective, you'll find, in raising your children. And that same thing needs to be done out in the world and amongst us in the body as we minister to one another, as we minister to those outside the body. So as you minister to others, you'll find, though, in doing this, though it may be tough, that the Lord gives you a great joy. And it's a joy that surpasses all the joy that you can strive for, that you can grasp for. It's a joy that can only be acquired when you give of yourself. The faithfulness here of the people that Paul administered to is what ultimately brings Paul that great joy. Knowing that in the day of Christ's coming, seeing his bride endure to the end makes all the persecution of no avail. We see in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 2, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. That desire to be with him so that he can see them made more and more into the image of Christ. That was Paul's joy. Not, not because they were his hope, they were his salvation. He looked behind that. When he saw them standing firm until the end, he knew that Christ, his God, was working in them and was fulfilling his promises. So the joy was ultimately in Christ who was working behind the scenes in that. And so as I look out here amongst the congregation, whether it's uh, to Bruce or to Scott, that there are particular men in this congregation that it's my joy to see you made more and more into the image of Christ. It's Marion's joy as he has opportunities to minister. And it shall be Keith's joy and future elders. That is the joy that ministers look for. They want to see... This bride, this local body, made more and more into the image of Christ. And so when we gather together with the saints, there is an element of being fed as we come here. But our hearts should have that same passion that Paul had. We should long to see one another built up using our spiritual gifts. So every conversation that we have, it should be encouraging, it should be uplifting. And sometimes there are even... tough conversations. Sometimes that sharpening generates friction and heat, and it's because we want to see one another built up in Christ. So one of the things I sent out an email about earlier that follow up on, that as we look to homeschool our children, there's often a mentality that uh, that ministry to our children only occurs when we have those children inside of those that age bracket of homeschooling. But as we look to strengthen the body and equip the body and use our gifts in the body, you'll find that it doesn't matter whether you've already had children and they're already grown or you haven't even been married yet. There are ways that you can minister in that setting. There are other settings. It can be from old age. You can be a young person ministering to someone older. There are countless scenarios of how you can minister in the body outside of whatever your local concern is. It's part of God's sanctification process. We often look at the the challenges that get faced with homeschooling. There'll be parents that say, I 
I can't homeschool. I'm just not, I'm not gifted that way. And I'd argue that everyone with children is gifted in a way that you can disciple your children. And part of that is part of your own sanctification process. As you disciple your own children and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you're going to see yourself in them. It's the same thing as we minister to our elderly parents. Again, often the, the philosophy is let's just push them away and let someone else minister to them as they get older. I'd argue that, no, there's a, a sanctification process that those people are missing out on as we care for our aging parents. So when you have that next conversation after we finish worship today or whenever it might be, whether it's during the week or here on the Lord's Day, think through how you can edify and equip and build up that person that you're speaking with. Is that conversation that you're having with them intentional? God has placed us here in the relationships that he's placed us in for a reason, with a purpose, and for his glory, for our good. So treat it as such. And then you'll start to take joy in those, even when there's tough times and tough times of persecution or just tough times of sanctification going on in those relationships. Now, this hope that Paul has here, again, it's, it's not a hope in the people that he's ministering to. He knows that ultimately they're sinners and they will let him down. But his hope is in Christ who will work all these things out for his good. So what are these joys that he mentions here in verse 20? What are these joys that we have in our life that can sometimes replace the godly joy that Paul envisions here? But sometimes they can actually help teach us what that joy is that Paul's experiencing. So picture yourself going down a a ticker tape parade or being called up on stage to be handed an award. Or for those that are introverts that don't like going up on stage. Picture someone else you know going up on stage and getting that award so you can kind of empathize with them there. What are those things that bring great joy in there, that, that job of well done? Is it a, a, a contract that comes through? We can rejoice in that. Is it a pay raise that's given? Is it a closing on a house that one's selling or buying? Is it a graduation? as you graduate from whatever it is? Is it a marriage as you stand at the altar or watch someone that you love stand at the altar? What about having a child, either for yourself or seeing that first grandchild? What are these things that bring great joy? And, and I don't want to dismiss those. My, my emphasis here is not to take these things and say, oh, we need to not have joy like that. What I want you to do is I want you to think about those joys in those type of scenarios. And now apply it. This is, take that and see this is what Paul's looking for. This is the same kind of joy that Paul is experiencing when he sees that body that he's ministering to standing before the Lord at his coming, knowing that, wow, they are glorious. They stood firm to the end. Ultimately, the boasting that we do should not be in our own works. That boasting that we do is in how God is working all those things out. and The things that he is doing and he has done through us. Now, as we go through this times, these times of great joy, as we wage the spiritual battle, 
What does the flip side look like if we give in? What's the downside here? What's Satan trying to accomplish in his tactics? Realize it's a very valid concern, and Paul was greatly concerned over it. So despite their solid grounding in the sovereignty of God, up until the point of actually sending Timothy to get news and to bring it back, they had to hope and pray that the faith of the Thessalonians would endure. So what were they dealing with? What, what was the, the, the potential end? It was the sin of apostasy. See, Paul and Silas and Timothy wanted to see these people endure to the end. And to apostatize would mean that they gave in. They didn't endure to the end, whether fully or even partially. First Timothy 4, 1 through 3 helps us understand a little bit more of the, uh, what they thought of what apostasy was, where they define it as giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It may not be an immediate turning away from the faith. It may just simply be, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe this. I'm going to cross this out. I'm going to ignore this. But it grows, and eventually you reject this. You reject all of what Paul's saying. You reject more in the Old Testament, and eventually you turn away from the faith completely. It's a real temptation. Just because you're standing here, baptized, part of the church, Paul understands that it is a real threat that Christians can face. Now, ultimately, we know, and the confession teaches, that God's people cannot be taken away from God. But he urges them, nonetheless, to fight that fight. Don't give in to that temptation. Stand on the promises of God, but don't be presumptuous in that. Don't assume that you are bulletproof with that. And so stand firm. So how do we stand firm? What is that way of escape that God gives us? Ultimately, it's to cling to Christ. When that temptation arises that says, that causes you to doubt any one of God's promises, turn to Christ and trust God's promises. Utilize the means of grace that God has given. Sit under the preaching. Come to him at the table. Confess your sins and repent. Don't wallow in them and hate the God that causes you and calls you to repent, but confess them and turn to him in humble reliance. For he says he always makes a way of escape. In 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overcome you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, not man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So even here, the good report greatly eased that mind that Paul had and allowed him to rejoice and be comforted. With the ultimate end goal, the, the thing that was in the forefront of Paul's mind is here in verse three, or chapter 313. It's that holiness before God at the coming of Christ. That should be our goal when we minister to one another. Do we want to see one another stand before the Lord holy in his sight? So next Lord's Day, 
we start Advent. We begin the Advent season. The season that we are going to enter into is not a season dedicated solely to looking back on his first Advent. Instead, we do look back to that, but we also look forward, just as Paul does here, to Christ's coming. So throughout that season, look not only to your own desire to see Christ, but set your minds on the ministry that God has given to you. Seek to fulfill that ministry so that those entrusted to you are presented spotless before the Lamb. As you suffer and are persecuted, and it's not an if, but as you are suffered and are persecuted, remember that God has foreordained that. It's from even before the foundation of the world, ultimately for your good and for his glory. You're in this battle. As we see in Peter, be sober, be vigilant. Keep your weapons in use. Train. Model those tactics that you're using in this battle after Paul, Silas, and Timothy's tactics. Endeavor for face time with those you're ministering to. Follow up with your discipleship. And then when tough times occur, know that God has ordained them. Take joy in them. Rejoice what he has done. And so we can rejoice even now as we come together today refreshed by our God who sets this table before us. Our enemies are surrounding us, and yet he tells us to come despite the battle that's going on. He bids us to come and not shrink back. So when that persecution comes and you're tempted and you stumble, he commands you don't despair. He commands you to turn from that stumbling ways, turn from where you have faltered. Repent, confess, and come to him. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we have gathered here before you, surrounded by enemies throughout the world, but confident that you are at work at all times, guarding us and protecting us. We look forward to your coming. and We pray that we will be standing fast in that day, and that you will give us that great joy of seeing those you have entrusted to us also standing before you. When the evil one assaults us, discourages us, and drives us to turn from you, then strengthen us and equip us. When the enemy craters our runways and blocks our ways and seeks to prevent us from ministering in the ways you have gifted us, show us alternate ways. Give us a firm reliance upon the weapons you have already given us, knowing that those weapons are from you and you are the one who fights our battles before us. When our desire to minister to our wives, our husbands, our children, and our neighbor wanes, give us the hope of the joy that awaits in that day when you commend us for ministering to your people. Now may you, our God and Father, direct our way to you Make us increase and abound in love to one another and to all and establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all your saints. Amen.